We had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, also a quarter tequila, quarter rum, case of beer, pint of raw ether, two dozen amyl. Not that we needed all that for the trip, but once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. As far back as educated men have recorded their history, veils have been lowered to disclose a vast new reality, rents in the fabric of man's awareness. And somewhere in the endless search of the curious mind lies the next vision, the next key to his infinite capacity. Yeah, this week's show, we'll just get right into it here. This week's show is kind of, I would say it's somewhat us exercising our demons a little bit to an extent. Um, this week, more of a wheelhouse. Yeah, we'll call it a wheelhouse. Well, it wasn't, it didn't turn out the way in some level that I expected to, which is pretty good. Um, but this week we were joined by Dr. James Storr, who's, he does a lot of work with neurology, a lot of work with addiction, things like that. We were put in touch with this guy through Tyler. This guy. We were put in touch with him through this Tyler. Guy. This guy right here. He says you right want to do it. Yeah. His name's James, yo. And he, uh, <laughs> he deals with the addictive stuff. But um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. But um, he, uh, we've been wanting to do a show for a long, long time because as we've stated in, we stated in this episode later on and you stated on Facebook not too long ago, you are a recovering addict. You've been clean for 18 years, yep. um, which congratulations. And my mom, when my mom was alive, my mom was an addict. And as we say later on the show and, and we've joked around with uh, me and you have always made jokes back and forth about the railroad tracks and how we've both rid the same train from different <laughs> sides. And we've both seen the same thing from different sides of the track. You being the addict, me being the person outside of the addict. Right. Um, and though I'm cool with it now, I don't have any um, lasting effects dealing with my mom's problem. And I think you're pretty well adjusted. You don't seem to have any major effects. You're open and able to talk about your days. I'm doing all right with the amount of work that I had to do with myself. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Now, there was something I was going to ask you before the show. Um, uh -oh. And we said, you said, no, I don't want to talk about it right now. So oh, what is it? I know exactly what you're going to ask me. When you were, when you were back in the days of, of, uh, of getting high, what was your primary drug of choice? What was the one that really, that you would go after mostly? I know you say you did a lot of stuff and you were a garbage can. Did you have anything in particular that really, that you were like, this is all right. I could deal with this. Um, well, my drug of choice was yes. Okay. Um, but I will tell you that I, I was caught this in the show. Actually, we do have this conversation in the show. Sort of. I was brought to my knees. My, my, I finally hit bottom. That's I was brought I, to my knees by, by alcohol. Alcohol is what brought me to my knees. Alcohol was what brought you down of all the stuff. Alcohol was what brought me, brought me to my knees. Yeah. I had yourself many times, even in the show, you refer to yourself as a garbage can. I am. I took, I, I would take any, the only thing I can honestly say that I never did knowingly ever did was I never dropped acid. Okay. That's, That's one of the ones that I was going to ask him about, but I didn't because it doesn't have addictive properties that I know of. But anyways, 
Um, I never dropped acid, but I see shit on my own, so I don't need hallucinations yeah. through chemicals. So, so alcohol was what brought you down. Though. Alcohol is what brought me to my knees. Wow. That's that why was... in early recovery, I started out in AA. Yeah. And then you followed the process all the way through and stuff. Um, I, I, I transferred over to NA uh, probably about completely after about a year, almost a year clean, a little over a year clean. I, I transferred over to Narcotics Anonymous full time. Uh, only for the fact that uh, I had way more problems than just alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I understand that, you know, AA works wonders. I'll never speak badly about AA. Um, but for me personally, I needed something that was going to address the fact that I have more than just an alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I it, it, if I wanted something, I wanted more of it. It didn't matter what it was. To this day, I want to be able to eat chocolate like 24 hours a day. Yeah. So I, I can't. I can, but I'll be, you know, 500 pounds in no time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I have the disease of more, and I, I want more of anything that makes me feel better. So. Okay. Nonetheless, we're going to bounce into this episode. And this is not a don't do drugs show. If you're going to do drugs and do what you're going to do, we're not here to preach to anybody. Matter. Exactly. You're it's gonna not do whatever you want. Yeah. You know, what you're going to do spins around the globe, do whatever makes you feel good. And, but in the end, as long as you have control of yourself and you do what you're going to need to do, if you're going to need to get help, then fine, go get help. But it's something that you want to do. But that's not uh-huh. what we're here to talk about. But we are here to talk about what happens when you do these drugs. What causes you to become addicted? What does it do to your body? What are these things made of? How does this affect your drives? Um, how do these things work? You know, what's what's the key to what's going on inside of these people's brains? And then we take a little bit of a look at what's going now uh, as far as treatments, what's happened with treatments. And then I think we talk a little bit about um, what's happening in the future, what what he sees happening bit. on the horizon as things coming down the road. So uh, what we'll do is we'll see you guys at the other side of it. everybody welcome back tonight we have with us dr james store i did say that correctly didn't i yes okay store. james store and you are i don't want to call you an addiction medicine specialist actually i don't want to call you quite anything yet because i don't fully understand the full scope of what you do so tell everybody who you are and what you do sure i'm a professor at midwestern university um my phd is in physiology uh, but uh, I really specialize more in neurophys. So I guess I would c- consider myself more of a neuroscientist. Most of the work I've published or talk on is, is in that realm of, of neuroscience. Uh, I've been at the school since 1996. Uh, I teach in the medical school and the graduate schools there, uh, primarily in the physician assistant program. Uh, but I'm not a clinician, so I'm not mm-hmm. a physician. Uh, I'm a you know basic scientist with uh, a background in uh, neuroscience. Okay, so we're going to be talking to you tonight about the effects of, of drugs and how they affect people. What clinically and neurologically goes on inside people's brains. Now, as me and Lobo were telling you before the show, we always ask the scientific doctor people type that come on the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> Does anything we're going to talk about tonight is that conflict with anything you do? I mean, are you you're not paid by the pharmaceutical companies or nothing like that? Or no, you know, I, I you're not have, endorsed by Twinkies or nothing. 
no, uh, I have, as, as far as I'm concerned, I'm concerned, I have no conflicts of interest. Um, I don't work for any pharmaceutical uh, companies. Uh, you know, I work for the university. I often do public speaking on behalf of the school. Uh, but I've been doing it for so many years. I, I don't think I've said anything wrong. It's gotten me into trouble. So, uh, no, okay. I, I know, I know we could try. But, <laughs> Uh, so, so I would say, you know, in those, in those areas, no, I have, I have no conflicts. So. All right. Well, I guess I should just jump right into the deep end and we'll try to roll with this. This is, as we were telling you before the show, Lobo is an 18 year clean addict. I grew up around a lot of drugs myself. My mom was a very heavy drug user. She went across the board and myself and Lobo often joke. We were joking earlier that me and him have both ridden the same train from opposite ends. I said I was in the caboose and he said he drove the engine and then he said, no, I was on the, the cow plow on the front. Is that what you cow said? Catcher. The cow catcher. The yeah. cow catcher for years. So we've always wanted to do a show about drug use, but not in a, you know, don't do drugs kind of way. We've always been curious as to what causes when somebody does drugs and they get into them more and more heavily, what, you know, I, we've both seen firsthand directly how drugs change people and what they do to people to make them from one type of person into something else. So I'm going to jump right into the deep end of the pool right off the bat and say, how do drugs chemically rewire the brain to cause addiction? Is there is there a process that you go through that that happens? Is it pure neurological? Is it chemical? You know, how does what is the basics of how this works? Yeah, it's. I, I would say that initially it is really at the chemical level. So you you would get into whatever drug it may be, uh, which you know they all share the common property of causing euphoria or pleasure, and that's primarily due to you know one specific neurochemical called dopamine. Um, that's what gives us the high. Uh, that's what uh, essentially brings us back for the next few times. And that's a very, very specific chemical system deep inside the brain. All mammals share that system. It's, it's really, it's a system that is there to make sure that it turns on naturally when we engage in survive, uh, survival type behaviors. So for instance, eating, drinking, reproducing, and to some extent, caring for offspring. So when we're hungry, we eat, we feel satisfied, euphoric. Mm -hmm. Same thing with sex. It's very pleasurable. You know, even caring for offspring to some extent has a reinforcing property. That pleasure is due to a little bit of dopamine release. So, you know, that's the brain saying the next time we're in the appropriate situation, we're hungry, we're thirsty, it's appropriate to, you know, create offspring or care for them then we will do it. We will remember the pleasure associated with it. It will increase our chances of doing it again. The way it does it is to give us that subjective experience of pleasure. The problem is, is, is that system is really working on survival type behaviors. Uh, unfortunately, it is extremely susceptible to being uh, increased or augmented by drugs of abuse. So anything that causes pleasure, you know, alcohol or crack cocaine or methamphetamine, whatever it may be, pushes that same survival system. If you keep pushing that system repeatedly, eventually you overwhelm kind of the higher cognitive centers involved with control. And so, you know, you could use the analogy of, of maybe uh, uh, an engine, a motor in your car. You have the accelerator. And then you have the brake. 
And if you keep pushing the accelerator, you floor it, and your engine is strong enough, it doesn't matter how much brakes you put on, you're going you're gonna to overwhelm it. Mm-hmm. So essentially, all it is is the deep survival center gets pushed beyond its normal limits. The higher centers in the brain, more frontal cortex type areas, just cannot control it. As a result, you're really operating on drives. And you get to a point that you feel as though if you do not have the drug or alcohol in your system or whatever it is, you feel like you're going to die. And it's the, one of the reasons is, is because you are essentially operating on that deep survival system. You've overwhelmed the cognitive control areas. You kind of chronically self-administer and you are all about getting the drug or the higher whatever and nothing else matters. Yeah, after a certain point, your body doesn't even feel the high anymore. It's gotten used to it. Then the, that's where the addictive chemical reactions kick in, I would imagine, no? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, there, there's a process of tolerance. So you just kind of need more uh, to get high, and, and, and your brain and your body is adapting. Uh, then th- there's a, a process of dependence, um, which means is your body is so accustomed to it that if you stop, you go into withdrawals, you get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are really kind of the classic clinical stages. Uh, and then there's just, you know, all the other behavioral stuff that goes with it. Like, you know, whether you're committing crimes, you're neglecting, you know, your own health, your family, whatever it may be. But it starts out, generally speaking, it starts out at a very, you know, very kind of base chemical level, but which is very strong. I mean, we all know what it's like to be really, really hungry and not get food. I mean, we're pretty cranky. Mm-hmm. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah, that's one way to put it. Yeah, so you know, you take that craving for food or whatever, and you multiply it, you know, several times, and that's what you have. What you know, someone who is addicted to a a drug feels like, and they don't get it. Um, So it's it's at a much much higher level, and our brain really did not evolve to to function on cocaine or meth or anything else. I mean, it functions to make sure that we survive as individuals. You know, we eat and drink, and we survive as a species. So mm-hmm. we, you know, we pass on our genetic material. And if, so if we didn't have this chemical system for, for behavioral repetition of these behaviors, we wouldn't survive. So it's very, very basic, but it's ex- incredibly important. And unfortunately, it's easily hijacked. And when it does, then there is a process. Everybody goes through it at various stages, at various paces. But eventually, you know, everybody could become an addict to uh, an addictive chemical. I mean, we all have this dopamine system. So it's, it is a process. You know, people do it at various stages or, or rates. Uh, you know, things change uh, how quickly you will, you will become dependent which, or how, how easily you can resist. You know, so much of it is genetic. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of it is, is the drug of choice. Not all drugs are the same. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next. Is there a difference between the way different types of drugs affect your addiction? I mean, for example, I know crack is extremely – obviously crack is extremely addictive, but you also have uh, crystal meth, all of those things. Though they all work the same way, do they have a, a different chemical process they achieve to grab the same goal? Yeah, the the, the euphoria and then the uh, dependence, the addiction – is is very much the same throughout the drugs um but so they're all essentially dopamine pushers and that's what causes the high but they they do it one each one does it a little bit differently um some work through different means by which to increase dopamine 
and some work on other chemicals besides dopamine. So, you know, for instance, let's say on a scale of one to ten, um, you know, addictive properties of certain drugs. You know, I, I may say, uh, and this is kind of my my own subjective rating, but I may say that that crystal meth, uh, certain opiates, um, heroin, and others uh, synthetic, um, you know, using them IV or smoking. You know, those are probably a ten. Okay. Uh, you know, you, you, and, and the reason is, is they just are, they increase the amount of that chemical dopamine in the pleasure center very, very easily, very quickly and to a, a large extent. Um, so that's what causes the tremendous high, the euphoria and so on and so forth. But then there's, you know, alcohol, alcohol might be, you know, a, a five generally speaking, uh, again, depending on individuals, you know, sex might be, I don't know, might be a three. Uh, it might be a four. Uh, it, I guess it depends on the individual and whatever <laughs> sex they're having. But um, I've never considered sex an addictive drug, but okay, I guess we can oh, go that route. <laughs> for sure. Uh, I mean, anything that, that pushes that system can become, you know, habit forming. Yeah. And, and so anybody that's in recovery because they, you know, they, they've had an addiction in their past, they just have to be careful with with anything that can cause euphoria because they could, you know, in theory, lose control of that. And, and you'll see that, you know, some people can't get, you know, their opiates. And so they'll, they'll, they'll start drinking. Um, or they, yeah, they can't, my mom. my mom would bounce from one thing to the next, to the next the terminology yeah. is usually garbage can at that point. Because, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, well, I've, I was asked after being clean for a few years, you know, I got tired of telling war stories and, and, you know, just, because, you know, you go and newcomers want to hear about war stories. Newcomers want to hear about your drug of choice. And I just finally said, because I had friends of mine that were in the in the, in the the uh, clinical field, and they were part of the DART program, and they had a bunch of stuff. And they got tired of hearing people talking about being cross-addicted and, and all this other stuff. So he says, you know what, next time someone asks you, just tell them you have the disease of more. Anything that makes you feel good, you want more. Yeah. So I was like, all right, sounds good to me. That'll work. But, you know. Over time, you're like, yeah, you know what? I really like yogurt. I'm not going to go out and choke on yogurt because I like it that much. Although there's been other instances where things were really good and I kind of fell down the path on that. But, you know, it just yeah, – I've I, yeah. I heard a, a saying once in, in, uh, in AA, which is, you know, um, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. overdoing. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's an old-time saying too. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and a guy would say, you know, I, I – I, drive alcoholically i drink coffee al alcoholically you know i i do everything alcoholically i mean essentially it's all the same thing i mean this everything we're talking about is compulsion See, that's, and it, these are it, compulsive disorders you it's know, funny when you go to aa and you hear that if you go to na and the old timers the old the old dope fiends it's it, the saying was it's balls to the wall or not at all <laughs> Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's like, yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> so, okay, let's talk about like let's talk about the effects even over short short-term addiction. If a person's only been using drugs for a little while, I'm talking like we'll say some heavy ones. Like let's let's go with the ballpark party drug that everybody seems to go with these days, which would be ecstasy, which pretty much uh shotguns your 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 system through the roof as far as pleasure centers go. 
Is there serious effects even from using it short term to your neurology? Yes, uh, ecstasy is a little bit. It's different uh, in that it's it's not a big dopamine pusher. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a huge serotonin drug. I mean, that's uh-huh. its primary mechanism of that's action. That's what I was going for. Yeah. Yeah, it, it works through serotonin. It causes a a big release of serotonin um, in different areas of the brain, and that causes the the euphoria and the empathy. You know, it's mm-hmm. an empathy drug, and that's how it was actually originally came out. It was MDMA was used uh, or designed for for uh, psychiatrists to use to get their their patients to just open up more, which it does. I mean, if you've ever been around, you know, people that oh, are oh yeah, on, I used to do raves, I used to do music. Yeah. I was the only guy that didn't get high in my group. They used to call me ground control, and I used that's how I got into recording and stuff. I used to do a lot of techno music, and I quit doing it because I would go to a show. And it's really great to look out and see all these people dance and know what you're doing and stuff. And you look down and you'd see the guy in the front row just burning himself just to feel stuff, burning himself with cigarettes or just crawling all over people or, you know, just sitting there. I remember one guy was just totally tripped out and he wanted people to just sit and lick him all over his body while he was standing there. And I'm like, I think I'm done with this scene. <laughs> so it was – I mean it's, it's seeing people in ecstasy, it's a it's, it's a really weird experience. It's It was different than any drug I'd ever seen people use. Yeah. And I definitely never wanted to try it. When I would go, I'd always carry my own pops, my own stuff to drink. I never took yeah. anything from anybody. And that was, you know, they're like, if you don't want to get high, you probably shouldn't be here. And you probably should bring your own stuff. Yeah. But I remember when ecstasy first hit the scene, it was unlike anything that I had ever seen. I was like, yeah. wow, this is crazy. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't work the same way regular drugs do. This is a design drug and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, now years later, people I've, I've, I've you see people that, are just their serotonin levels are cooked. They can't experience anything anymore. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, you know, I would say even though that's that's, that's anecdotal, uh, that's that's not uncommon. Um, and you know, yes, in the short term, it, it you know, in the immediate um, when it's in your system, yes, it, it increases the serotonin. You get all these sub- subjective effects. It kind of does push dopamine a little bit, which may lend itself to some uh, physical dependence. Um, but uh, it, it can be toxic and neurotoxic, and so there there is a fair rich literature on you know the effects of of uh, MDMA ecstasy on serotonergic cells in the neocortex, um, in in the limbic system, and other areas of the brain, and it does you know it does damage these cells and animal models, and it, from the best that we can tell. Somebody that has been taking it for a long period of time um, may have less serotonin in in their brain, as we can define by you know CSF levels of serotonin or metabolite. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's pretty clear that that you know there there is a, a point where you are destroying cells. You know whether they come back or not. I think is 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 still being worked out uh, in research labs and. You know, in animal models, it seems to come back, but it takes it could take a long time, years, and it may not come back to to normal. So, you know, even though it's 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 been around for a while, you know, in the medical literature and science, it's it's still relatively a new drug. Um, it is a designer drug. It's it's made on the amphetamine backbone. Um, so, you know, it was in the 90s that the Fed said, you know, anything that's made on on this chemical backbone is now illegal. Because what you know people would do is they would just move a methyl group or move a hydroxyl group on the chemical itself, and technically it would not be illegal, and you know it would give kind of the same effects. Uh, but then 
No, it was it was outlawed entirely. But yes, to to you know get back to your question, yeah, it is toxic. Um, it can be a depleter in the short term. It can be toxic in the long term. And um, you know the long term behavioral effects we really don't know. You know, no one's done a very long, um, large study on whether or not these individuals are going to have profound memory impairments or mood disorders or problems with sleep or appetite, you know, things that are typically serotonin in, in nature in our brain. So, you know, we really don't know yet of, of the long-term consequences. Hang out at an NA meeting. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, um, I, w- before I got clean, I was diagnosed with serotonin deficiency and I was on, I was on pharmaceuticals to help with, uh, serotonin production and leveling, stabilizing. And I was on them for quite a while. I was on, uh, they started me on Welbuterin. I was on Welbuterin. I was on Zoloft. Uh, I was on Paxil for a while. Paxil seemed to work really well. But given the nature of the beast, you know, over time you start to build up a a dependent, not a dependency, a tolerance for it. And when I first started, I was on 10 milligrams, which is the normal dosage. uh, About Eight to nine months into it, I was at 100 milligrams, and I was like, I can't do this. This is enough to kill a horse. After I had been off of, I'd been clean for about a year, I weaned myself off of the Paxil, and it, I, I still have ups and downs at times, mm-hmm. which is a hallmark of it, but nowhere near. Once I took the drugs out, I mean, everybody goes through ups and downs. It's mm-hmm. called the roller coaster of life, but, you know, you get to a point where you're using so much that you, you go into, um, you just don't care. You have fits of rage, you swing, and then you, you, you actually get insomnia at one point and it's just no, no bueno. It's terrible. No bueno. <laughs> but You know, we got, got, we have kids that come in that are, that are X heads and they're shot. They're zombies for the longest time until they get their That's- system. That's what I've read. For the longest yeah. time, it cooks you because it, it overloads your body so much on serotonin that when you come off of it, you can't really feel much of anything. You just kind of you're you're just kind of a lifeless husk. Which um, I guess that brings me to okay. So that's the serotonin aspect with the dopamine aspect. When people do neurological damage on those regards, what what kind of effects do those people have? Uh, you know. I- a lot of these these drugs really don't uh, damage the dopaminergic system too much. Um, okay. You know, they're, they they can do other things than they do. I mean, they, they can work through other systems, not just dopamine, and and they can um, they can damage you know your heart or your blood vessels or anything in the periphery. Um, but you know, typically they they don't do a whole lot of destruction of the dopamine system. I mean, if they did. Um, you, you would have, you know, uh, potential anhedonia, which is, you know, just the inability to to experience pleasure, even even well after sobriety and recovery. Um, you know, if if you damage dopamine cells in another part of your brain, you're probably going to have a motor disorder, uh, mm-hmm. a movement disorder. You know, Parkinson's is mm-hmm. Parkinson's disease is is a dopaminergic um, disease, loss of, of those cells in a very specific area involved with muscle control, movement. Um, but, you know, a lot of these cells are not that toxic to the dopamine. They can be toxic in other areas. You know, if, if kids are huffing, you know, paint Ooh. solvents, you know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, those are those incredibly toxic chemicals. Yeah, they are. 
Yeah, and they're also neurotoxic. You know, they're 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 damaging to to frontal cortex cells, other parts of the brain. They can have movement disorders for the rest of their life. You know, alcohol is a toxin. To some extent, you can get people that that have you know movement disorders. Oh, and, PS and, cirrhosis of the liver. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Other organ organ systems are damaged. Uh, methamphetamine can be very toxic. Uh, you know, primarily due to the byproducts left over from the manufacturing process, which are which are very toxic. You know, they can yeah, be, like battery acid. Yeah, <laughs> rat poison, Break, hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen sulfide. Yeah, uh, brake cleaner fluid is sometimes used, and you know, phosphorus, which you'll find in road flares. And yeah, that's always fun. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, you know, so a lot of that can be left over, and and those things themselves, but. You know, generally speaking, the dopamine system is turned on. You know, you get the euphoria. It's continually pushed. And then, you know, then the frontal cortex area gets involved. You start losing control. And, you know, if that part of the brain is damaged, then, you know, you're, you're really, um, you know, you could, you could struggle with long-term sobriety. Um, some of the worst cases I've seen here in Arizona are young adolescents that, um, have grown up in an environment where drug use and abuse um, is is relatively accepted as a part of their life, uh, and you know most likely they have a genetic predisposition that they inherited. Um, so they have the nature and the nurture, uh, mm-hmm. and then um, they they get into uh, drug use relatively early, maybe alcohol, maybe you know marijuana, something else. Then they start using meth, and they use meth when they're they're their brains have not fully developed, and oh. the the part of the brain that's last to develop is 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 the frontal cortex, and that's not until you know eighteen, nineteen, or twenty, and that's you know yeah. that's the behavioral control area, and so if you're really pushing you know the the drive center to get more and more and more drug, and you don't have a fully developed you know inhibitory frontal cortex, then you're going to lose control a lot quicker. Then you've got a genetic predisposition. Then you've got, you know, the nurture, you know, working against you. And, and those are the worst cases. And, and not only that, that they lose control very, very quickly, but their frontal cortex is actually very susceptible to the toxic effects of meth because it is still developing. And so now you're damaging, um, permanently damaging the frontal system such that even if they do get clean and sober, they really struggle um, with with avoiding relapse, and those are some of the worst, you know, cases that that I've seen here. Is you know they have everything going against them, and then they get into a drug that really is incredibly euphoric, and and it's readily available, and and it's toxic to the centers that control behavior, and they don't have as much of that center to begin with, and and it's just a recipe for disaster. They say that your brain doesn't really fully stop cooking until you start hitting like your later <laughs> 20s and 30s around that area. Then you, at that point, your brain's pretty much done. It's ready to go. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. 
or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. We were talking off the air, um, and I had read on the internet in regards to you something called the frozen addicts. You said that you didn't write any of that stuff, but you've studied yeah. a lot of it. Could you tell us about that? Because that relates to what we're talking about now, about the, that, I believe that happened back in the 80s. Is that when that was? Yeah, that, that was in the mid-80s in, in, uh, in California. And uh, it's, um, it's a book. It's, it's also a, uh, a, a documentary. I believe it was a PBS, a Nova documentary. And um, it, was, it was very, very interesting from a, a neurological standpoint, from uh, a drug abuse standpoint, but also very tragic. And um, these were individuals that uh, unknowingly were dosed uh, by accident with, with a previously unknown neurotoxin because they were in an attempt to using um, a heroin, synthetic type of heroin or meparidine, which is Demerol. And, uh, Look. yeah, basically it was, a it was an individual who was, uh, who was selling what was to be synthetic heroin. Well, he bought it from, um, an individual that was, was creating it in a clandestine lab. And the, the, the chemist was trying to make meparidol, meparidine, excuse me, Demerol, which is an opiate, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, you can get prescription and, and they use sometimes for pain control, but by accident, he did not make meparidine. He made um, MPTP, which we didn't, you know, it was purely synthetic. We didn't know really what it was, but it turns out that it is a very, very powerful neurotoxin. So, Jeez. yeah. Zombie so, meds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, in a way, yes, because yeah. what happened with these, these people bought it from the dealer and then took it and then – what happened was this neurotoxin went to all over their body, but when it went to very specific cells in their brain, it destroyed them. Mm-hmm. And it's those same cells that die very slowly in Parkinson's disease. But oh, theirs geez. were destroyed overnight and almost entirely. So they woke up, you know, the next day or later that night with, you know, in essence, full blown Parkinsonism. Whoa. Um, so, <laughs> wow. And, and the problem is, like, if, if you take a Parkinson's tremor to its end point, it is frozenness. You know, it's, right. it's, it's rigidity. You cannot move. Now, so these individuals would, would be conscious and they could still breathe. They could so still So they would blink, just essentially lock up. But instantly. they were frozen. Yes. Yeah. They were frozen. So they could be and, just sitting there and they would just lock up in whatever position they were at the time. Yes. And, That's uh, creepy. And we didn't know, you know, it it really became a detective story at that point. They were slowly coming into the emergency rooms in California one by one. The physicians didn't know what it was. And, you know, one of them still had a little bit of a tremor. And so, you know, after days of trying to figure out what it was, they were thinking maybe, you know, catatonic schizophrenia or, or, you know, meningitis or something infectious. Uh, This guy had a little bit of a shake. So they gave him a Parkinson's treatment, a drug. And, you know, essentially said, you know, thank goodness I was in there. I could hear everything that was going on. You know, I am alive in here and this is what happened. And so they went back oh, and they, wow. they got his stash and it turns out that, you know, it wasn't meparidine. It wasn't Demerol. And they analyzed it and it was MPTP. And, and now we actually use that, that, that chemical 
that was made by accident um, as a, as a tool by which to to uh, investigate Parkinson's animal models of Parkinson's disease. And so it became kind of a, a way to understand why these dopamine cells are just so susceptible in Parkinson's. And but it was a it was very unfortunate for them. You know, it was a time where um, you know the country really wasn't. <clears throat> Uh, interested in in doing you know transplants with fetal tissue, mm-hmm. so these guys actually went to Sweden, uh, some of them, and had it done, and uh, so they were able to to be regulated pretty well in their Parkinson's meds when they came back, but um, you know some didn't, and um, it's it's a great story from a lot of different perspectives. Historically, it's very important, you know, uh, in terms of medical research, it gave us a new tool, um, but you know there's a you know one of the underlying Currents is you know you never know what you're taking, and yeah. per- particularly in a designer drug, and, and who knows you know what's in it and what can happen. Well, let me ask you this then: in regards to drug treatments, what about things like uh, like the drugs that they give you to break you off of other drugs that are just as just as bad? Um, for the life of me, they're beginning to slip methadone. from me. Methadone, yes, methadone is the main one. How do things like methadone work? Because from no, everything that I've read. Yeah, that's another one where if you take these, the 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 cure is just as bad as the disease, you know. So you can take methadone, which gets rid of the cravings. I believe that's how it works, but it doesn't get you high. Mm-hmm. No, it it does. It's it's a longer acting uh, opiate. Um, it it does take the the cravings away to some extent, um, but it also does cause a little bit of euphoria. And, you know, yes, some people would say that it, it's just as hard getting off methadone as it is getting off, you know, the heroin or the prescription drugs that I was, I was taking. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of folklore, anecdotal evidence that kind of surrounds that, but it does work. And, and, and in a very controlled way with a motivated individual, it can work. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, there's, you know, a, a newer, medication that's come out to, to use instead of methadone is buprenorphine, which is suboxone. Works a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. It works a lot better. And, um, and it's, it's a different type of chemical, but it still works in the, in those systems to take the craving away. But it's also, it doesn't cause a whole lot of euphoria, so it doesn't get you high. So um, is it a blocker? Is that what, is, is it just, it's, it's it's mixed, actually. It's a mixed, uh, you know, uh, agonist at, at those receptors. It turns them on, but it's also, you know, uh, a blocker. So if you were to take heroin while you're on Suboxone, for instance, you probably are not going to get high. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I got a buddy of mine who was taking it, and he's like, dude, it killed my high. I'm like, well, what are you wasting your money for? Yeah, it? really? Why did you go back and get it? <laughs> <laughs> well, he figured it would work, you know, but he's like, I can't. He goes... When I started taking this stuff, it completely ruined my high. I'm like, well, that's the idea, dopey. Yeah, you shouldn't be getting high. That's, I guess that's where the prob- the things of the 12-step well, programs come into place because you need one to kind of support the other, I would imagine. You know, Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of evidence that would support exactly that, that, that you know, uh, medication has its use. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly therapy uh, has proven to be beneficial, you know, individual and group. You know, and a part of the group therapy is, is uh, you know, 12-step does work for individuals. And there's something about being in a group of, of others that have gone through what you're going through. Um, you know, the, the principles themselves um, are really kind of, you know, life satisfaction principles. It's like, yeah, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, what are my triggers? And who did I hurt? 
You know, who yeah. do I need to apologize to and how do I give back, you know, mm-hmm. to others that are struggling? So those basic principles, you know, are very sound, I think, in general. But um, yes, to me, they're synergistic. It's like medications plus therapy. It's like one plus one equals three. And, mm-hmm. you know, and depending upon your drug, I mean, not not all obviously drugs of choice are the same. And some medications like the other buprenorphine, the suboxone is great for for opiate dependence, but we essentially have nothing for methamphetamine dependence. Nothing. No. Uh-uh. And, Cold turkey. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, maybe SSRIs, SNRIs, so basically the antidepressants that you were talking about right. before. See, it but, seems you know, like meth is one of those things that once it grabs on it, it's like nicotine. It just does not let go, no matter how hard you fight it, though. Yeah, but in the same token as nicotine, you can't quit. Yeah, you can, but it's well, – I've, I've read that quitting, quitting smoking is harder than quitting anything. I've even heard yeah. that from addicts. Yeah, so, well, that's an excuse, but whatever. Yeah, but then it, you've got a different <laughs> mindset, though. I mean, you're you're pretty much the indestructible man at this point. But I well, mean, no, I still have my I still still have my issues. I started <laughs> smoking cigars again a little while ago, and I have to do I have to do that in again. Yeah, but you know, it's if you when you get into a point in the fellowship, any fellowship, I don't care which one you're in, NACA, AA, OEA, it doesn't matter. As long as it has the twelve steps, twelve traditions, and the twelve principles that are in play, it. It, you have you have the support you need. You know what you're supposed to do, and whether or not you do it is up to you. It's not no one else is going to recover for you. So, yeah, I'm not talking you know, about the smoking, You're like, yeah, you know what? Like, well, yeah, there's, like there are, there are things like that that grab onto you harder than other things, and the conspiratorial whack job part of my brain says, yeah, they're designed to be that way. That's how hey, they well, make their cigarettes work. are. Cigarettes Sorry. are. There are actually there's case studies that prove that that first. Few hits off of a cigarette contain more nicotine than the rest of the cigarette. The mm-hmm. nicotine is what gets you drawn in, and the other chemicals that are added to it enhance that effect. So, so it's not conspiratorial. If you smoke cigars, you're not going to get as much cigarette as you get out of a Pall Mall or a Marlboro. Yeah, well, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to swallow cigar smoke, anyways. If I'm, I don't know, I don't smoke them. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I agree that that. You know, what you're saying, Ro, is true, which is nicotine is tough. Um, and, you know, if you just look at, you know, studying it in a lab and animals, I mean, animals will, will do just about anything for nicotine once they're dependent, just like they will do anything for cocaine or amphetamine mm-hmm. uh, or a really strong opiate, you know, like heroin. So uh, it, you know, be, if it didn't have you know such a historical significance in the in this country, uh, it, it may not be legal. You know, clearly yeah, there's right. you know so many you know health consequences associated with it, but it also is obviously very addicting. And it's because nicotine does the same thing as these other drugs. You know, it's a dopamine pusher. You lose control. Mm-hmm. It works on a couple different ways, which makes it really hard to quit. It's got the whole, you know, hand oral thing that is is another habit that has to be broken, and and um, you know, they're socially acceptable up until probably you know thirty years ago. So, let me bring this one in because <laughs> we haven't mentioned this up until this point, and I kind of don't think it's worth mentioning. But what about the dreaded marijuana? You know, is that a category unto itself, or it affects things differently? Because I I myself do not smoke weed. I've got no interest in smoking weed. I don't care. I'm a very firm supporter of medicinal marijuana, but I just you don't see the horror stories with marijuana. People get stupid on marijuana. I've seen a lot of people that smoke a lot of weed and and become very stupid because yes, it does kill brain cells. But I don't see people wanting to sell their kids 
to get to get weed. You know, they might get cranky or they might get mad because they can't get their <laughs> munchies for the night. But you know, does marijuana really fit into these categories? Is that a different thing completely? Uh, no, I think it does. And, okay. Um, it it doesn't. It does. You know, if we're talking about like the addictive property of well, it. physically addictive. It can, I can see that part, but chemically addictive is it, does yeah. it have the same properties? Uh, it, it does, but to a lesser extent. Um, so it, it does push the dopamine, which can cause you know the the compulsive self administration. It just doesn't do it as much mm-hmm. as the drugs that we typically think are, are more addicting, but it does. But it also works on its own separate chemical system, okay. which which is unusual for most drugs of abuse. I mean, other drugs of abuse, they, they push dopamine, they'll push maybe serotonin or norepinephrine or something like that. But, but cannabinoids or THC actually has its own receptors in the brain. Mm-hmm. And that makes it a, a very unique class. And so I agree that it is in a class by itself, but it is a drug of abuse. So it, there's very clearly a psychological dependence that comes with it. There can be a physical dependence. There can be an abstinence syndrome, you know, a withdrawal, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of like a very mild opiate withdrawal. Uh, but you know, chemically, yeah, because the worst I see people going through in marijuana withdrawals is they need, you know, they want their pizza or something, you know, but, uh, I don't yeah. see the same effects on people that smoke a lot of marijuana. Again, it's not something that I want to do or have any interest, sure. but I've definitely, like when my mom was hooked on drugs, the only time when she was actually halfway decent was when she was smoking marijuana. When she was smoking weed, she was actually kind of mellow and cool. The rest of the time she was an insane maniac. Whereas it was like, please go smoke some weed, mellow out, you know, be cool. <laughs> hey, let me ask you a question, James. Yes. Um, considering that marijuana has its own designated receptors in the brain, why do you suppose that is? Or do you have correlative data that suggests why that is? Yeah, uh, I think anytime that, that you see something that has its own receptor in the brain, then you know that there is a natural uh, chemical in the brain that normally binds that receptor, and that's the case. Uh, okay. we, we have kind of a THC-like neurotransmitter and uh, that we all have, we all use, um, and uh, it's uh, it's – uh, primarily involved in, not surprisingly, you know, uh, mood, appetite, uh, sleep, and uh, to some extent controlling nausea, controlling pain, um, and you know that's that's the basis of of medical marijuana is it will do you know it will stimulate appetite and it does have a little bit of a a pain blocking property to it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but you know. The reason is, is because, yeah, we actually have a THC-like neurotransmitter. And, and what it's doing, we're still investigating. Um, we have a lot of cannabinoids receptors, excuse me, in the brain. Um, and so now there's more medications um, that are, you know, kind of uh, exploring that, that, that whole class of drugs, the cannabinoids. So, you know, we're going to have cannabinoid antagonists that mm-hmm. may come out for appetite control. So, you know, uh, eating disorders, uh, overeating, obesity, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, we may have cannabinoid drugs that are used to, to treat other addictive disorders. Um, and, you know, we certainly 
ha- have lots of research to say that you know it, it's good for nausea. Um, it's it's good for a little bit of pain control. So um, yeah, and and so anytime you hear you know oh well that thing's got a receptor that means you have a natural you know chemical that binds that. And uh, so this is a hot area of research. Do you think that's because of the? It's hard for me to say it without sounding a conspiratorial freak, but. You think that's because they're going to take more risks with looking at this stuff now because of the lightening of the laws on marijuana, or no, I, just is this this new science that supports this? Yeah, it's a new science. You know, it, it's really discovering the fact that we we have these receptors, and then it was a matter of finding out what's the natural neurotransmitter. Then it's a matter of finding out, well, you know, how does it work? What does it normally control? Yeah, uh, and then like. Can it be useful in other things? Because you always hear about, well, they won't let it happen, man, because you can grow it in your backyard, and it's not something that they can control, man. But <laughs> it's like, really? No, <laughs> but you also hear about, you know, oh, yeah, it can help cancer, and it can. it's it's kind of like – but then again, that could just be pot, pothead supporters that are trying to push it out there. That's, pothead supporters? I don't know how else to put it. I know that's wow. the wrong terminology to use right now. But, it, you know, that could just be people that are in strong support of marijuana – because you run across it on the net that, you know, information like this marijuana can help cancer, but this information is being suppressed and all this stuff. And I'm kind of like, well, I don't know if I go that far, but yeah. you know, well, it I does make you a little paranoid. So maybe that's the side. That, that's the other thing I was gonna say. Everybody that I know that smokes pot, in much the same way that I, everybody that used ecstasy kind of flaked out. Everybody that I know that smokes pot for long enough becomes paranoid. They they become they they, be, they become munchy headed paranoid people. I've never had any. Any time, any any substance that I used, it didn't matter if it was marijuana. We all know my track record with PCP, alcohol, <laughs> any of the any of the chemicals that I took. I never had the euphoria and the happy and the la la. I was I always went from here I am to angry Puerto Rican. You know, my mom fit. was the same way. Why is that? Why is it that some people have a negative? It's supposed to bring you happiness and make you euphoric. Yet some people become raging assholes. You know, is there is there a reason for that? Is that chemical reaction in the brain as well? Yeah, undoubtedly. But, it, you know, there's a lot of things that come to play into that. It's like, you know, what's their base kind of mood like? And, and what's the drug that they're taking? Is it something that makes them, you know, it, it causes, um, you know, um, stimulation and so they can get you know more angry or whatever at the same time euphoria or is it like it's alcohol like the drunk jerk at the bar you know <laughs> yes. yeah 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 and, or or is it disinhibiting so it yeah. kind of like takes the brakes off and so like you get kind of like this this manic or someone who's really excited but actually they're a little bit drunk and you know so everybody just responds very differently to different drugs and and uh, you know that kind of tells us like even though we all have the same chemicals and we all have the same receptors, generally speaking, there's a lot of variation yeah. uh, between individuals. And, you know, you could give me, you know, uh, 30 days of, of smoke and cigarettes and I'll become totally dependent, totally addicted. Mm-hmm. And you could take, you know, my neighbor and no, they would hate it. They just couldn't take it. They, they wouldn't stand it. There, there's no way they would do it. And but yet it's it's working the same way. It's just our, our kind of our base state is just so different, you know, chemically speaking. So, you know, I think there's probably a lot of different things that come into play when, when you look at how people respond. Some of them, you know, chill out. Some of them get aggressive. Some of them are super happy. Some of them are angry. Mm. And, you know, I think when, when you have somebody who's who's really spiraling, no matter what drug they're into – 
their their chemistry is just so labile. You know, they're up, they're down, they're they're happy, they're pissed off, and and then they you know take a drug and it makes it worse or it makes yeah. it better. I mean, they're just so <laughs> unpredictable neurochemistry. You know? It's just, I mean, right now, still today, after eighteen years, if I have like. Like if I when I get when I get a cold coming on, I take Dayquil because it oh seems boy. to be the only thing that works. <laughs> but when I take that, before I start taking it for the day, I have to like let people know, look, I'm on Dayquil. Because yeah, we've this done is shows go, with you on Dayquil. Yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna go one of two ways. Either <laughs> either you're gonna hear everything you don't want to hear from me because I just don't give a flying rat's ass. Or um, I'm going to come out of the side of my neck with some really strange stuff. You do. And that's my, that is my <laughs> experiences with you. It's weird. I've oh. always wondered that because of you being a former addict. Just, when you take Dayquil, you – well, the shows that we've done with you being on Dayquil, you're just really random and out there. I mean you're never a jerk, but you, you say some really flipped out stuff out of nowhere. Yeah, I've had sometimes some bad I've been editing editing those it. shows has been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so so what is it in the day quill? Is it the I don't know. I've we I've know. tried I've tried to zero it down to one particular Caffeine's chemical. another one for him. It's caffeine. Just, oh yeah, caffeine, forget Extreme it. Extreme caffeine, man. He just he just sounds like an auctioneer on cocaine. <laughs> he just it's goes bad. off. It's it's really funny, but it's like, dude, you, you got to slow down about 17 more miles an hour before we can keep up with you, and he just goes. But um, all right, I'm going to ask you one more final thing. <laughs> if you have a crystal ball or a newer experience of what you see, now I know you're not clinical, so maybe this isn't a good question to ask you, but what do you see coming on the future horizon for for drugs, or is there a trend that you see coming, or do you see, you know, what 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 is coming our way next for us, finders, designer drugs go? Oh, uh, in part, as far as the designer drugs. Um, well, anything in general. I mean, what does the future of drug use look like for the most part? Because I remember growing up, meth was out there, but you never really heard. You know, you heard about yeah. meth, but then crystal meth became this big thing. Ecstasy, when I was a teenager growing up, you know, back in, when, yeah. I, when I was younger, no one had really even heard of ecstasy. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't until, here. yeah, until later on, all of a sudden, boom, there's this thing, ecstasy on the market. I yeah. mean, do you see things on the horizon coming or trends or anything like that? Yeah, I think you know we're 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 at a uh, time point now where there there are a fair amount of designer drugs that that you know come up. So spice, you know, the synthetic cannabinoids, they they mm-hmm. came up a few years ago and really. Oh, I remember took, that. Yeah. yeah, they took us by storm, and then you know the bath salts came right after that. You know, which are cathinone derivatives, and and you know those are different. They're stimulants, and and uh, you know they're very powerful. Uh, the the you know, the spice derivatives are very very powerful cannabinoids. And I remember so the, the legalized marijuana. They were selling it in gas stations and stuff around here. And I remember the nurses. I knew a couple of nurses that worked at hospitals, and they were telling me the people would come into hospitals. They would far rather see people smoking regular marijuana than the synthetic oh, yeah. stuff because people would just wig out in the strangest ways. Yeah, and that quickly became illegal. That was one of those things. Yeah, that just uh you know that so, was so- weird. So that whole process of like a synthetic drug being produced and it has effects and it's being produced like out of the country, then it comes in and it's distributed through, you know, smoke shops or whatever it may be. And it's technically not illegal. It has some, you know, uh, psychoactive property and, and it's and it's marketed as something else. Uh, and technically it's not illegal. So it does get sold. And then, you know, we're in catch up mode. So we, you know, we're in catch up mode clinically like these guys are coming in. They may be, you know, brief psychotic breaks or or you know uh, hypertensive crises their blood pressures through the roof whatever it is and so you know their case series case studies and clinically we're playing catch up legally we're playing catch up and and uh yeah that, you know, is another example that came out exactly. of nowhere 
yeah, who got yeah. there? I'm gonna I'm gonna smoke this bath salt. How do you do that? <laughs> well, it's only called bath salts. It's not actually the stuff that you float around in your tongue. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's a cathinone, which is is cot or cat, which you know is actually a, a plant product in the Middle East and and you know or, or the Far East, and so that's been around for thousands of years, the plant product. But mm-hmm. once it was isolated, and then we you know were were able to to replicate it synthetically, and then you manipulate a little bit, and then you know, the whole um, marketing distribution, there's profit to be made. And so I think to answer your question, I think we're probably going to be seeing more of these synthetics that that come up and kind of in that same uh, pattern of, of being produced abroad, distributed, technically not illegal. Then we're, you know, playing catch-up mode. Then we make them all illegal. Um, so I, I think that that's you know kind of a paradigm we're going to be faced with for for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know you know meth is is kind of a designer drug. Ecstasy. I mean, if you want to say in a way, that's a designer drug. I mean, they're all what synthetically made. I don't Have know you what heard that anything is. Anything about lean? Oh, it's messed up. It's I guess you can make it. You it's it's it, the cocktail's made within your own body, and it's Skittles, mm-hmm. watermelon, Arizona, and Robitussin cough medicine. Oh, what? Robitussin. It's yeah, it's it's called lean. You look it up. What it's, is in Skittles then? Great, we just have, gave listeners the recipe. Someone's gonna overdose no on idea. lean thanks to us. Oh, I have it's it's on the news, it's been on the news, it's in the it's on the internet. I can see Robotussin because there's stuff in Robot has been like slizzer. I mean people make that stuff out of Robotussin. I Robotussin. used to drink Robotussin. I used to keep a family sized bottle in my yeah, locker. I can't at touch school. this stuff, it makes my blood pressure go berserk. But uh I can see okay. The only thing I can see there, what's getting you high, is the Robotussin. I don't see Skittles and Air- Watermelon Arizona is. getting you high. I don't know what I don't know what's in it. I don't know if it's the I don't know if it's the, the artificial flaverings well, and stuff I that guess, are in uh, it. You know, a meth, uh, crystal meth is probably out of, edit uh, that out. Ephedrine. Or something. Now I'm gonna leave. I <laughs> should probably edit that part. Well, out. you know, if, if, if it's, I, I would agree with Ro. If it's, if it's the, if it's, you know, the Robitussin, then, then it's dextromethorphan. Yeah. Um, you know, it's and which is kind of a mild opiate, and and people have been trying to isolate that for years and use it in different ways. And it's kind of like I mean, that. it's it's amazing that that general. You know, I know so many people will be like, oh, I heard if you do this, or I heard if you do that, and so you're taking the word of somebody who has essentially, you know, they have no medical background. Around. You know, they have no yeah, training right. whatsoever, but you're going to take their word for it. But if, if like a scientist or a clinician or even a government agency says, you know, we think that this is a, a good medication, well, immediately, like, I don't know, you know, yeah, you know, who are they to say there's a conspiracy <laughs> there? Yeah, it's addictive. Co- I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's called a new hip hop high or a new hip high. It's on ABC. They covered it on ABC. Well, the information's and already out there then, so it's we'll out be free. <laughs> it's out there. It's a cocktail. It's highly addictive cocktail of cough syrup, cold medicine, alcohol, and candy. Well, any yeah, the candy's well, just there to add flavoring to it, probably. Yeah, I probably. I don't so know. So anybody is, can go buy the cough syrup. Yeah, any, yeah, well, that's the reason why now if you go into the store, you get checked for your age. Yeah, that's what or, I was trying yeah. to say. When when people make crystal meth, they they go and buy a you know, Sudafed or something like that. Yeah, that's yeah, when I was when I was when I was still getting high. Here, near, here comes the war stories. <laughs> when, before I got clean, we used to go out and get Sudafed and a bunch. I'm not going to name the other stuff, but we got Sudafed as part of a cocktail of other stuff. And then we'd chase it with like scotch and you'd be Gonsville. I mean, I was always in a fight and, you know, always angry and ripping stuff. Shocker. I was always pissed off, ready to throw down at the drop of a hat. So it didn't matter. But the other cats I was with, they'd be off in La La Land. 
fun. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot of this stuff is kind of doing the same thing. Maybe it's taking the Sudafed out of the cold med. I mean, yeah. a lot of cold meds, the liquid stuff has alcohol in it, like NyQuil mm-hmm. has alcohol in it. Then you have, you know, Robitussin, which most likely is the dextromethorphan, maybe alcohol in that too. Uh, they so took really, the alcohol you're looking- out of the Robitussin. That's gone. Pardon? They removed the alcohol out of the Robitussin. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in high school, that's why I kept it in my locker because I'd get the shakes if I didn't drink. So I kept the Robitussin in my locker. Wow. People do anything for a buzz. I mean, that's bottom line. Yeah. All right, James, we're going to cut the show out here because you've been on here for an hour now. Um, I very much appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much for doing this. This is something we've been wanting to cover for a long, long time, and we're glad we finally nailed you down to be able to do it. Um, again, thanks for being patient and all that stuff with getting the show up because we've been having all kinds of hiccups behind the scenes. But uh, thank you very much for being here, man. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the the opportunity to, to speak to you and your audience. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was our interview with Dr. Store. I keep wanting to pronounce his his name is it's spelt to where I don't want to say it the way that I'm saying. <laughs> and I even wrote I'm like how do you say your name? He told me so I wrote it down again to make sure I would say it properly like it's I always spelled, do. It's spelled store, it says store. But I don't it, want to say it, it as store. Rose sees it and goes I want to potato. say potato. <laughs> this is potato. This is Dr. Potato. What? No, no, it's not Dr. Potato. So, yeah, that was our show. Really cool guy. I'm glad yeah, uh, Tyler put us in touch with him. Uh, we had a little bit of a conversation off the air about a potential future episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which I'm I'm 100% sure will happen now because yeah. he was right into what we were talking about, like far I, like more so that I think than what we were talking about tonight. He's like, oh, yeah, I, I study this too. And I'm like, what? Really? What? Hmm, yeah, we've done good. shows on that before. Good so. hook. Um, I do want to welcome Chris to the Facebook page. He joined up in the Facebook page today just a little bit ago. Chris, I don't want to say his last name, but we had a a guy named Chris join up on the page. I'm not going to say his last name. Okay, welcome. So welcome to the page. (laughs) Welcome to the Facebook page. (laughs) I was busy Um, fixing stuff at my house. Yeah. I've the show release is going to be a little wonky for a little while. <laughs> just to let everybody know up front, because a my work schedule again has changed, um, which isn't real hard for us to deal with. We can work with that. But uh-huh. I'm also in the process of looking for and possibly getting a new job. And if I get this new job, my life, real life schedule is going to be wonky for a little while. I'm going to be working a different. I'll be working an afternoon shift, and I will be working weekends. So when me and you are going to record is going to be different. We're going to figure that out. We're not fading. We're not going to go away. Our output might be a little bit different. Um, we definitely can't go away because you got a new microphone. Good. <laughs> which you can't microphone. tell, which sounds fantastic finally. Um, I sound the, like Barry White. Yeah, here we go again. You better not play that clip, dude. What clip? Because I know you were recording this morning, you prick. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. I was in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Start singing some Barry nice. White for everybody. So uh, as of this recording right now, I'm not entirely sure when the next episode's going to come out. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have something figured out by next week, I'm sure. You know what? We, we're getting close to 100. I know. Um, Got to figure that out. I don't know entirely what I'm going to, I still, I'm still looking to try to do something live for episodes. All sea monkeys all the time. 
on the one hundred. I don't know shows. if I want to do a show where people write in questions to us and we do some. Oh, kind that'd of- be great, dude. Yeah, but the problem is, you know, everybody on the Facebook page. You so know everybody on the page. It's it's all going to be questions about bananas. Or so we could. It's uh, hello, newsflash, genius. The only time people are serious about our show is when they're actually listening to the show. Well, here's the thing: if they write in, you know, we can answer. We can we can farm the questions that we have. We can't don't have to keep answering the same questions over and over again. Yeah. You how know, like oh well, how does he look in a banana suit? I don't know. Let's find a picture. What you know, I mean, do for an episode 100? Because when we started this show, episode 100 was so far off my radar. It was like. I need to get these 15 people on the show and we need to cover these topics, let alone episode 100. God, that's that's so far down the road. I'm not going to have to worry about it. I don't, I don't know, dude. I'm like everybody's like like Ed Hayes. He's like, dude, what are you guys going to do on your 100th episode? I'm like, I'm really not no. really that impressed. I don't care. It's not that I don't care. I just don't know what I want to do. It's a big thing for me because every I, I mean, we've we we didn't know how this was going to go when we first started. I've gone back and listened to our old episodes and listened to how much we've changed and how much we've covered. Well, dude, I'm still a dick. <laughs> <laughs> You'll notice I'm not arguing with you on that. But anyways. no, you're not. You're then that makes you a prick. Well, all right, we're gonna go because I gotta get off to bed here. I get up for work at like three thirty, four o'clock in the morning now, so my schedule's backed up a little bit. Nice. But um, I think that's it. I think we're good for now. I think uh, I think it's bedtime for me. I don't know what you're gonna go do. But I have uh, no idea either. Everybody's hopefully everybody's asleep upstairs by now. <laughs> All right, this is Rojan, folks. Peace out from the D. This is Lobo from Connecticut. Star Mercerized Sewing Cotton was the number one brand of thread at one time. Do you, <laughs> what are you, do you have a book that you just, do you just, is there a book you just look this stuff up no, in? Or do you just no. randomly click something it's on the just, internet? No, do you run your finger down a page and say random stupid stuff to say? No, I wish it was on the internet. How is that, that in your be, head? It just is. How is look that it, in your head? How, look it up. Peace out, folks. Peace. What the hell? <laughs> so glad to see you well. Overcome them completely silent. your demons out and not to pull your halo down around your neck and tug you off your But I'm more than just a little curious How you're planning to go about making your amends To the
down to choke you now. I think I'm kidding. How do you I even come up with? What is that kind of a way? Is that the close of the show? Head scratcher. <laughs> it's a cliffhanger. You won't let me pay the part about you being Barry White on your new microphone and morning sexy voice, but you'll come up with something like that? I fully expected you to throw that in there. Hello, this is Barry White. I just want you to know that... The, the, this is my morning voice. This is my morning voice, and Star Sewing Thread was once the legal best wow. sewing thread. I don't even know that. Star Thread Sewing Cotton was the number one thread. I <laughs> you like that one? Can you say it in a sexy voice? I don't have a sexy voice. Yeah, you do. You got your AM sexy voice. Well, it's not AM. We'll try to be AM. My Sing voice a, is already burned out. Say it in AM sexy voice. What? Star Mercerized Sewing Cotton was once the number one selling thread in the country. All right, that's Morgan Freeman, but I guess it'll do. 